Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading from verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we come before your word, as we meditate on it, as we meditate on its power and its significance that you would change our hearts and our lives. Speak to us, God. Speak to us in a still, small voice, in a loud cry, whatever it might be, Father. Please just speak to our hearts, because we desperately need to hear your voice. Father, our, our ears are full with noise and voices of life in the world around us, Father. But we pray that you would clear all those voices away so we can hear yours this morning in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past uh, couple months, we've been looking at uh, this book of Acts. We're going to take a break from the book of Acts for the summer, but we've looked really at the first four chapters of this book, and it's been uh, an amazing journey together. It's an amazing thing to read and to look at and to really see how this message of Jesus or this gospel of Jesus Christ first took root in the first century world after Jesus ascended back into heaven. And you see the power of the gospel, the dynamite of the gospel just exploding in the first century world. People being converted to the message of Jesus Christ all over the place. Thousands of people, after hearing this gospel, their lives are changed and they follow Christ with their lives. We've seen how powerful this message of the gospel is and and how because the message was so powerful, it attracted people to it. But we've also seen how this community of believers... This brand new community of followers of Jesus Christ built this beautiful sense of community amongst one another. And it was so beautiful that people looking at it from a distance said, I want to be involved in that. That's a community that's been transformed by something. So they were not only attracted to the message of the gospel, but they were attracted to the sense of community that they saw. We see that this community was committed to the very gospel itself. They were 
committed to worshiping together with one another, constantly, always gathering together to worship the Father. We see that they devoted themselves to really caring deeply for one another, even to the point where they would sell their possessions, the things that they had to help brothers and sisters who were in need and were demonstrating this radical sense of community. But we also see that they devoted themselves to this thing called prayer that we're going to look at this morning. Prayer, simply put, is is communicating with God the Father. It's being in a communicating, a regular communicating relationship with someone who means something very deeply to us. You know, prayer is something that almost every single faith tradition cherishes. There's something about it that really connects with our soul that whether you're a Christian or not or whether you're in all sorts of different faith traditions, prayer becomes a cornerstone or an incredible essential value of almost all these different faith traditions. And we see that very true with Christianity and especially this first century movement of Christians. Prayer is at the heart of what it means to be in Christian community. It's at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this morning we get to read, we get a kind of window into some of the prayers that these first century believers prayed. And we see this prayer that they, it says, the scriptures say that they lifted up together as a community of faith. What happened when they prayed this prayer is that Peter and John, who were uh, two of the kind of cornerstone or foundational leaders in the church, uh, were in the temple one morning and they ran across a man who'd been lame. He'd been unable to walk for 40 years for his entire life, so they don't give the man alms like he was used to being given, but they heal this man miraculously on the spot. So that he's jumping and leaping and running around through the temple, praising and worshiping God because his legs had been healed by Peter and John, ultimately through the power of Jesus Christ. And Peter and John use this, uh, they, they, they use it as an occasion to spread the message of the gospel. They tell everybody who's witnessed this, everybody who's seen it, that this man was not healed by some magic, but he was healed by the very power of Jesus Christ. And that power is available to you to heal your soul, to heal the the most broken places of your lives. And Peter and John preach this message of the gospel and, and people are converted left and right. But ultimately what happens is they become arrested. These officials that are observing this happening, that are seeing them spread this message of the gospel, arrest them and detain them overnight and then bring them in front of them in some sort of mock trial and want to know where this power is coming from that healed this lame man. So Peter and John have an opportunity to share the gospel with those that are most powerful in the region that day. And at the end of this opportunity to share the gospel, they receive a threat. They are told, do not speak this message of the gospel. Do not speak of Jesus' name any longer. And of course, we know from the book of Acts that they didn't obey that command by the high priest. So they're dismissed from the high priest and they go back, it says they go back to their friends, they go back to their community, and immediately what they do is they begin praying together. You see, they've reached a crisis point. They've reached a point where they realize that this is going to be more the norm moving forward. That they are going to be opposed by the religious leaders. They're going to be opposed by people. They're going to face persecutions. So in this crisis moment, the first thing that they do is they pray. I know so often in my life when when things become crazy or, or, or crises tend to bring up, often the prayer is the last resort 
that I go to. But in these first century believers, the first thing they did, they didn't strategize. They didn't talk bad about these leaders. The first thing they did was pray. And what I'd like to look at very quickly before we come to the Lord's table is two very simple things about the way they prayed that I think can have great impact on the way we think about this thing called prayer. And the first is that they prayed with boldness. They prayed with boldness. You see this in verse 24. It says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Often when you look at the scriptures, it'll give theology. It will give truths about God. It'll say very kind of declarative statements about who God is and about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And often after it declares that truth, it then tells you how to practically live that truth out. Theology in the Bible is rarely divorced from practical living. And that's what you see in our passage here. It gives us a truth, and then it talks to us about how we are supposed to live in light of that truth. And in this case, when these first believers came to pray together, they reflected on the idea, a theological idea, that the God who they are praying to is a God who is sovereign. The sovereignty of God teaches us That God, who sits in heaven, is in control of everything that happens. One writer said that there is nothing that happens without his knowledge. There's nothing that happens without his direction. There's nothing that happens without his permission. Everything that comes, comes by his hand and comes according to his plan. And what that means is that nothing that happens to you catches God by surprise. Nothing that happens to you is not a part of his perfect plan. All things, both good things that happen to you and bad things that happen to you, come from his hand and they are a part of his perfect plan. It's why they, in this prayer, they quote Psalm, verse, Psalm 2 here. Because what Peter and John are reflecting on as they pray, as a community of faith, what they are recognizing is that their very arrest that their very trial before Annas and Caiaphas was not by accident. It was part of God's plan for them. In fact, God raised Annas and Caiaphas up to even arrest them. They knew, they understood that this was all part of God's plan and his purposes for their life. These threats that they received were a part of his plan. Now, I will be the first to admit that when we think about the sovereignty of God, sometimes it's a very hard concept for us to grasp. It's very hard for us to understand how God could have everything planned out, about how nothing could surprise Him. And in some ways, it's a very hard truth for us to understand, too, because sometimes we reflect on all the rough things that we go to, and and it's hard for us to think that this could be part of God's plan. This very painful, this very difficult situation that I'm going through is from the hand of God. And sometimes that is very hard for us to grasp. And when we think about the sovereignty of God, it's, it's almost impossible for us to understand it completely. You see, we have very finite minds. It's very difficult for us to understand it. And there's much about God's sovereignty that's very secretive. We can't always add one and two together. We can't always pull all the strings together to figure out why God does this and how God operates in such a sovereign and powerful way. But ultimately, we know that he does. 
And these first century believers didn't have all the answers about God's sovereignty either. But what they chose to focus on was the fact that he does have all things under his control. They chose to focus that what had just happened to them, though they didn't understand the whys and the whats and all the particulars of it, they understood that it was from the very hand of God. And when you and I begin to reflect on that, when we begin to reflect on the fact that God is sovereign, it really ought to transform how you and I pray and how we think about this thing called prayer. If anything, it ought to translate into us praying more and it ought to really change about how we pray often and, how we, and the character of our prayers as well. Now think about it in this way. If I have a car that breaks down, uh, and I'm, if you know me, I'm not a mechanical person whatsoever. I wouldn't know the ins and outs of how to try to figure out a car. So even something that's very small or very, something that's very significant, if it breaks down, uh, I, I can't fix it. So what are my first steps? Are my first steps to call any, any old Joe Schmo or, or any old person here or there or that? No, my first steps is to, to call someone who has the ability to fix it. Maybe I call a mechanic. Maybe I call AAA. Maybe I call uh, the car manufacturer. I make sure that the person who I call is someone who is able to affect and who is able to change my situation. Somebody who has the know-how and somebody who has the ability to help. Well, the same ought to be true when when we relate it to our prayer and how we relate to God. Because what the first century believers reminded themselves as they came to God in prayer is that the very God who they are praying to is the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. He is the source and he is the author of life so that when we cry out to him, we cry out to him in confidence that he has the ability to change our situation. He is able. He is capable of fixing the the greatest scenarios that we are most befuddled by. He is able to change the very thing that we feel so unable to change. Now, it doesn't often mean that he will. Sometimes he does answer our prayers in the ways we most desire, but sometimes he doesn't as well. But what we can do is we can reflect on the fact that when we bring our requests before him, we bring our requests before a God who's sovereign, before a God who is able, before a God who is capable of making changes. So think about the situation that seems most difficult to you in your life right now. Think about that situation that seems like it's just never going to change. Or think about that person who is, is causing you stress in your life. That person whose heart just never seems like it will ever change. And the problem seems like it has no solution. Well, reflect on the fact that God is sovereign. And that he is able and that the scriptures tell us that he holds the hearts of kings and rulers in his hand. He is able to change the most difficult situation that you and I face. You know, the flip side of all this is what our practical behavior often says about what we believe. Because I think if we really and truly believed in the sovereignty and the power of God, we may never stop praying at all. But often our prayerlessness 
reveals a lot of things about what we believe and about where our heart is. Often our lack of prayer communicates the fact that we live with, a, with an incredible lack of faith. That we live with a lack of belief in God's ability or a, or a very strong belief that our circumstances are too big for God. That He just can't handle them. So because of that, we don't pray. Or maybe our prayerlessness has to do with the fact that we have a lot of confidence in our own sovereignty as people. I find so often that this is the reason I don't pray. Because I think I've got things under control. I'm sovereign enough to handle the circumstances and the situations of my life, so therefore I don't bring those things before God. You see, our prayerlessness or our lack of prayer says a lot about the state of our heart as well. I can remember about two and a half years ago, uh, Beck and I had just made the decision after lots of prayer and uh, after lots of talking to different counselors and people in our lives, we'd, we'd made the decision uh, that we were going to leave the current church that we were working at uh, to go and plant City Church, where you are here this morning. And like any big decision, we made the decision, we kind of made the decision public, and, and then we immediately started second-guessing whether we'd made the right decision, because we often do that, don't we? When, whenever we have these monumental decisions, we almost immediately begin to wonder why we did it. And I can remember one particular day. We knew that uh, we were living in Baltimore County at the time, and we knew that we wanted to move into Baltimore City to live in the neighborhood in which we were planting. That was one of our values. We knew it was important. So, so we, we said we need to sell our house. We need to put it up on the market. And everybody that we talked to said, well, the market's terrible. You'll never sell your house, but it might as well just put it out there and, and, and see what happens. So we did that. We contacted our realtor. We put the house up for sale. And uh, as soon as we put the house up to sale, everything that everybody told us would happen happened, and that was nothing. Nothing happened. There wasn't much interest in the house. There wasn't much, uh, many people coming to look at it. There just wasn't much energy around it. And we were starting to think very pessimistically about the ability to sell our house. And I can remember one day, I, was, I remember this vividly. I was out cutting the lawn when I was doing this. You have deep thoughts when you cut the lawn. I was out cutting the lawn and I was reflecting on this. And, and I, was, I was starting to have all these kind of doubts come up. And I was thinking, what, why did we make this decision? What, why have we done this? Why have we, why have we chosen to, to uproot our kids and to kind of change what we know to do this incredibly possible, impossible task of planting a church with, with, uh, from scratch with, in the city, no less? And how, how could we have cho- chosen to do this? And I'm starting to think, well, maybe I can go back to my old bosses and ask for my old job back, and maybe they'll take me back. And all these doubts are starting to come up, and we're wondering why we're doing this. And I can remember very vividly at that moment just, just thinking and beginning to pray. And I don't recommend these sorts of prayers often, but for whatever reason I did at that point, and I said, God, we are discouraged. We are, we are full of doubts. We are wondering whether we ought to do this. And I, and I remember praying to God. I said, God, would you sell this house? And would it be a confirmation when you sell this house that Beck and I are doing the very thing that you want us to do? And sure enough, by the afternoon, we had three offers on our home. I've told that story to a lot of people because it was a huge confirmation for us in our lives about the power of prayer. It was a confirmation for us that we were doing what God called us to do. And I've told many people that story, and they said, would you take a minute and pray for me (laughs) and whatever situation that I am facing in my life? You know, I remember thinking to myself, 
uh, I was so surprised by what God did. And I remember thinking to myself, why am I so surprised? If I really believe that God is sovereign and I really believe that he delights to bless his people, then why am I surprised that God so powerfully and tangibly answered my prayer? And I wondered why I don't pray more often. And I think I had to come to the hard truth and the hard realization that I don't pray more often because I often believe that God doesn't really do things like that. But you see in this community of faith, in these first century believers, that they prayed with boldness, believing that the God that they prayed to was sovereign and that he answers prayer and he is able. But the second thing I want us to see is not only did they pray with boldness, but they also prayed for boldness. They prayed for boldness. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And you see, our tendency to think about these first century believers is they had it all together. Is that they had it all figured out and that's why God so powerfully blessed them and and so powerfully, uh, you know, uh, used their ministry to change that first century world. But they were just as scared as you and I are, day in and day out, about life and about the reality of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You see, Peter and John had had just boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus in front of the highest officials of their day in that town. And then they immediately go back, and what do they do? They pray for boldness. They pray for more boldness. Now, there's been often times where I've had to speak and and, uh, and, and people have come up to me and they've said, wow, you, you look so calm and you look so comfortable. And I've said, well, that's great because I was scared to death on the inside. And I think that's the reality of what Peter and John were facing. They had just spoken boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands of people. They'd seen thousands of people converted. But the next breath, they start praying for boldness. Because they were just as frail and weak as, as you and I are. But I think there's also a foreshadowing element here too. And I think they were beginning to realize the writing that was being written on the wall. They were beginning to realize that this was just the beginning of a very severe season of persecution that they were going to have to face for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they prayed that they would have the ability to endure it, that they would have the ability to proclaim this gospel when it seemed like all the opposition of the world was really against them. You see, these first century believers were given a very powerful mission. They were given the mission to spread this message of the gospel to their friends, to their co-workers, to everybody that they rub shoulders with. And God gives you and I that very same mission. That co-worker that you see every day, that student that you sit next to in class, God has put them in your path for a reason. But often we are beset by all sorts of fears and anxieties when it comes to speaking the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We're beset with fears. We wonder what if our co-workers reject us if we start talking about Jesus? What if we get labeled as some sort of religious kook or, or they spread rumors about us that destroy our reputation? 
What if our faith begins to interfere with our ability to do our job or our success as an individual? You see, we're beset with all sorts of fears, just like those first century believers were. And it's why you and I need to pray for boldness, just like they did. We need to pray that God would give us a burning passage, a burning passion for the gospel in such a way that it dispels all our fears and our anxieties. Because what God promises is when we faithfully proclaim this gospel message, that he delights to answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer, and he will begin to change not only our hearts, but all those people's hearts that he has put in our path day in and day out. We have to ask ourselves, who might be the person in your life that God has put in your path to communicate this message of the gospel with? Who might God be calling you to love and to build a relationship with? Who might God be calling you to share this message of the gospel with? Does that scare you? It scares me too. It's why we need to pray for boldness, just like those first century believers did. So we see that they prayed with boldness, and they prayed for boldness, and in the midst of that, God answered their prayers And he stands ready to answer your prayers and my prayers as well. Whenever I think about prayer, I don't know why this is. I probably heard this illustration from someone before, so don't credit me to it. I'm probably just regurgitating something I've heard before. But whenever I think of prayer, I think of an an old black and white photo uh, that was really popular, uh, you know, decades ago. And it was a photo of when uh, John F. Kennedy was president of, uh, of the United States, and the photo is, is of his son, JFK Jr., uh, playing on the floor of the Oval Office while his dad was on the phone conducting the affairs of the United States. You know, what's so beautiful about that picture is, is there's that little boy who's a son playing in his father's office. You know, if you and I wanted to get into the Oval Office, we probably couldn't, to be completely honest. But even if we could, we'd have to go through a million background checks. We'd have to go through a million security checks. We'd have to go through all sorts of steps just to gain access into the Oval Office. And here there's this little boy who can run past all the security checkpoints, can run past all the guards, can run past all the Secret Service, because he can just enter into his father's presence and sit at his feet and chat with him. You know, the truth is, that's what we have with God in prayer. Even more so than JFK Jr. had with his father, JFK, we have access to the God of the universe. We can rush and run into his presence anytime we want, want, without fear, knowing that we are his children, we are his sons and daughters, and that he delights to answer our prayers as a father delights to love and answer the prayers of his children. That's what we have in the Father. That's what those first century believers had when they approached God asking with boldness, asking for boldness, and it's what you and I have as sons and daughters of the King. So whatever anxiety is plaguing your heart, whatever person you're wondering about whether I should share the gospel with, come before the Father because he delights to hear your prayers and to answer your prayers.